So after last week, I anticipated getting some angry emails, uh, or just emails disagreeing with what I, I preach, but to my surprise, there weren't any. So I'm left with one of two options, either people agreed or people didn't, um, or maybe a third option is people just didn't care. Um, so what do I do next? That's the question. Every time you preach a sermon that is, is uh, controversial or you, you step on toes a little harder, what do you do next? Well, obviously you preach about pastors being paid. So that's the, yeah, and God's sovereignty in, in, in coordinating Paul's hand as he was writing this passage, um, I, he may have looked through the years and seen the struggles that pastors would have as they preach on giving up rights, and then, no, now you've got to pay me to do this. Um, but what, what our church values in its preaching, it, we said this last week, is called expository preaching. And what this means is that we take a passage of Scripture, the main idea of that passage becomes the main idea of the sermon. And what the best way to do that is, is by starting in verse 1 and just moving through the entire book. What that protects us from is being able to pick and choose what we want to preach about or what we want to discuss. I'm drawn to this preaching because if it's done well, it opens up God's word in ways that, that hopping around the Bible simply can't. It forces us to wrestle with thoughts that we have about Scripture and about the Christian life. It forces us to challenge how we view the world. It, it often forces us to change our opinions because we have our own built-in opinions that are, that are because we're the way that we're brought up or the way the world works. And so we open up God's word and we see something that forces us to question, well, maybe that doesn't align with Scripture. Expository preaching forces us to deal with those things because we cannot skip over hard passages. Last week, the difficulty was with modern application, bridging that gap between the ancient world of the Bible and the modern world of today. This week, our text deals with a similar issue as last week, but the difficulty, at least for me, maybe not for you, but for me, is not in the application, but rather in what the text actually says. We've gone from saying that we need to set aside our freedom and our rights to serve one another, and now Paul is saying that churches need to support those who preach the gospel. You can see why this is a difficult task for most preachers. It's always a bit messy when you talk about money, isn't it? Because it may come across as self-serving. Oh yeah, he gets his income from, from being the pastor of the church and now he's preaching on why the church needs to pay him as a pastor of the church. But a commitment to scripture means that we value what God says in his words. That these words from the Apostle Paul are just as inspired as those red letters in your Gospels. That all of the Bible is God's word. From Genesis to Revelation, there is not one word that is less significant or less important than any other. And so even when it's hard to preach or even to listen, we hold God's word high. And this is why we preach expository preaching. Uh, that and the fact that you can't blame me for what I'm preaching. Because this is found here. If you, you can pray if you want and ask God, why did you do this? But this is not an agenda. There's no secret plan. This is just preaching through 1 Corinthians. Well, last week we looked at 1 Corinthians 8. 
And in that chapter, Paul tells the Corinthian church that taking care of the needs of others is more important than celebrating our rights or our freedom as believers. Now, there was some division in the church um, over whether Christians should eat meat that had already been offered to idols. Some were fine with this. They thought that since the idols didn't really even have any power, they didn't exist, they were just carvings of, of wood and stone, then, then what difference does it make if some priest or, or, or some uh, a guru prayed over that and blessed that food? What does that matter? This is where most Christians today would land. Who cares? Offer it up to any idol you want as long as it's cooked full. But in the ancient world of the early church, there were Christians usually newer to the faith whose consciences would not allow them to eat this food. They viewed eating that food as a sin. The early church wasn't much different from us today. We have disagreements, and so did they. We often need someone to be a mediator in those disagreements, and they did too. But the debates we're seeing happening in the early church are different than, uh, than what we're dealing with now. Back then it was over theology and practice. I mean, they were forming the local church. What is it that we believe? What is it that we hold high? Who is Jesus? What is the Trinity? Those are really difficult things. And the truth is, is that most of what we argue about today is preference. It's what it is. It, it is, is and I use this a lot. What color of the carpet should we choose? Not whether should we do something that causes someone to sin or not. The truth is Paul could have agreed with the Jerusalem council. And he said that eating meat that's been offered to idols must be avoided. But he didn't say that. Instead, Paul appealed to their Christian love by saying that if he does anything that causes a weaker brother or sister to stumble, he will stop doing that. Now where the the difficulty last week may have come in, and we talked about masks and social distancing, not because they're more important than anything else, but just because they're the most relevant examples. But you can think of an instance in your life, and we, we can list those where a mature Christian failed to consider the effect of his or her actions on a less mature believer. Probably isn't over food, but it may have been over the appropriateness of certain kinds of entertainment. Maybe it's someone maybe guilty of overindulging. No matter what the issue is, Paul was pleading with the church to set aside their own preferences if it meant that someone else in the congregation would be blessed. Truth of the matter, this doesn't just involve food. This is everything that the church does. The Christian life is a one of constant sacrifice where we are constantly looking for ways that we can set aside what we desire in order to bring someone closer to Christ so that the gospel can shine more, so that the glory of God can shine through us. That is the goal of the Christian life. And what better way to do this than by Paul's very own lifestyle? In verses 1 and 2, he defends his status as an apostle. And by the way, he's building a case in this. He's building a case that he deserves to be uh, given a, at least some sort of income because he is faithfully serving them with his time. Listen to verses 1 and 2. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? 
If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The Nicene Creed, written a few hundred years after Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, says this. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. There is but one church, all who have been brought into the family of God by faith. And that church is to be holy, which means to be set apart. The term Catholic simply means that this stretches across all time and places. It's not the big C Catholic, it's little C Catholic. It stretches all time and place. But what about the term apostolic? Paul says in Ephesians 2, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So just from this verse, we know that the apostles are important and they were instrumental in building up the church and spreading the gospel to all the world. So the apostle, the word apostle can be usually defined in two different ways. First, it can be used as a messenger, uh, someone like an ambassador. Someone who is, is appointed by a head of state to go out and speak on behalf of uh, the, the head of state and relay back any information that they get. That's one. In that sense, we're all apostles in that sense. We are all messengers of the gospel. We are all called to go and, and tell people about Christ. That's that. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is speaking of a position, a title that he bears. This use describes a person who was commissioned directly by Christ to bear witness to who Jesus is and what he has done. We don't know how many there were, but there were many in Scripture that were called apostle, James, Barnabas, Apollos, to name a few. And verse 1 in our text shows us that an apostle was a person who had seen the risen Christ and was appointed by him to bear witness about this finished work. This is why I believe that this office is no longer in existence. Because no one today has seen the, the risen Christ or has been commissioned directly. But Paul did experience both of those. Paul met Jesus on the road. And, and Paul was given this charge to go and, and spread the gospel, to go give the gospel to the world. Paul, in his obedience, went out then to train pastors, to plant churches, and to serve as a missionary in the marketplace. Though the New Testament books had not been fully completed, Paul was well known. He, he was as close to, uh, I guess, a Christian celebrity as you could get at this point. He had trained and discipled pastors, and his influence was wide. And Paul's point in chapter 9 is that he, of all people, is a person that has certain rights. Remember chapter 8. He's telling the church to give up those rights if it means that you're going to be a blessing to someone else. And now Paul's saying, look, I of all people, I have the right, I have the right more than anybody else to be paid for what I'm doing. I'm planning churches, I'm traveling, I'm doing all of these journeys and, and I'm going through all of this turmoil for you. It was his right to receive pay, but he has chosen not to make use of those rights. Remember in chapter 8, some were using their right to do something as a way to justify what they were doing, even if it harmed others. And Paul is making the case that it was God who called him to be the, the pastor or the church planters to these churches. And it did not depend on what the church in Corinth thought about him. The church in Corinth believed that they were entitled to a certain kind of leader. And Paul, for some reason, didn't measure up. Verse 3 shows us that Paul is being questioned like he's in a courtroom. 
In other words, he's on trial and the church is arguing against him. Look back at verse 1. You'll see the emphasis he's putting into his defense. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Who called Paul? One of my closest friends um, was pastoring a small church. And we would meet regularly. And he is a, a faithful brother. And the church was small. And so the, the, the elders of that church, there were a few others, um, their goal, their aim, they thought, was to have more people coming to the church, that the church should be growing. And the truth of the matter is the average church size in this country is 75 people. The average church in this country is not growing numerically, but they wanted to, which is a noble cause. And so they decided that the best course of action would be to bring a church consultant in to, to look as an outsider and find all the problems and then tell them how to fix it. It's not surprising that the problem that they discovered was the preaching. Now, it's not a problem for me because we sat under his preaching for uh, about a two-month span, and his preaching was faithful and, and, and expository, and it was wonderful to hear that. But he wasn't and isn't a charismatic guy. He's not drawing people in. He, he's not someone that everybody's talking about. you got to come hear this guy. He, but he's faithful. And he preached the word week in and week out, and he loved the people. Well, it was determined that the consultant said that the problem is preaching. And so, along with the consultant, the elders had decided to, to create a list of things that the pastor needed to do to improve his preaching. They said, you need to do this, 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 and this. And, and some were okay, some were very generic, some were just awful. And so as he did not do the, the improvements that the elders had determined was appropriate for him to do, they limited his preaching to once a month. And this is the lead pastor. And at that point, I said, man, it's not going to end well. Start, start sending your resume out because it's not going to end well for you. And they gave him this list, and of course, he could never measure up to, to, to this list of what this church wanted. They wanted to grow, and they found the easiest person to blame for it. There were lots of issues under the surface. And rather than trying to deal with those issues that are bubbling under the surface, they went to the person who was the most public position. And within months, my friend was out of a job. This is a story I've heard many times over. See, pastors have always been in a strange position. The church pays pastors to be, to be available and caring, and everyone loves that. But the thing that some people don't like is, I'm also paid to step on your toes. I'm paid to challenge you. I'm paid, because I've been doing it every day for the last week, I'm paid to come in here and preach God's word, to come and rip apart the idols that are pushing you away from understanding the glory of the gospel. That's part of my job. You pay me to do that. Churches pay their pastors to come in and do that. And that's been the truth for 2,000 years, but the difference now, and we've seen this with COVID, the difference now is that you can find any preacher you like with a couple clicks. You can find any preacher that fulfills your needs spiritually with just a few taps on your phone. So why do you need this? Some people have told me they've given up on the local church because they found 
great teaching online. And I'll be honest, there are thousands or hundreds of thousands of better preachers than you can get from right here on Sunday morning. So there are pastors right now all over the world who are preaching to people who are somehow comparing him to their favorite preachers that they have online. So what does a pastor do? Defend his calling? But who really calls the pastor to a church? Search committee? No. The search committee honestly just echoes God's calling already. Is it the church that votes in a pastor? No, they're doing the same thing. They're just echoing what God's already done. Well, you say, well, what about a pastor who's not very good? What about a pastor who's, who's not faithful? My question is, does God use them? Every church has a history of pastors that may have not been the most faithful pastors. But did God still work through that? Of course he did. If we trust in an all-powerful, almighty God, we have to believe that whoever God places in the pulpit, whether it's for one week or a hundred years, God is still in control of that. Because God is stronger than whoever's preaching. You know how I know this? Because when I die, the preaching will continue. God will still move through this church long after I'm gone and long after all of us are gone. In verse 4 then, Paul says this. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? He's not saying that he has a legal right. Everybody does. It's pretty obvious. What he means by that is he has the right to financial support so that he can actually get food and water. So that he can actually purchase those things to survive. What this means is that Paul is saying that churches ought to pay those who are preaching the gospel to them. In verse 5, he builds on this point. Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Again, there's no argument against marriage that, that it is acceptable to marry. But what happens when you get married? Now, it's not just you you're taking care of. Now you have your wife that you're taking care of. Two mouths to feed. In verse 6, Paul says that the church is supporting the other leaders, but it seems they're, for some reason, unable to support Paul and Barnabas. We know that from Acts 18 that Paul was a tent maker by trade, meaning that his primary means of support financially was making and selling tents. This is uh, what we would call today bivocational ministry. What this means is that some churches, especially those who are small, don't have the income to pay a full-time pastor. And so they give them what, what they can, and then the pastor has to go find another job on the side. I can tell you what bivocational doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you're giving half time to a church. There's not one bivocational pastor that I know that does 20 hours a week and ends it. It doesn't happen. All this means is you're doubly busy. But this is the trend of what's happening now with churches as they're getting smaller, bivocational ministry is, is growing. And this is what Paul gives the, the example. Paul is doing that himself. He's built, making tents and he's also preaching the gospel and traveling. But while, while Paul is arguing that churches should financially support those who serve them, he has chosen to work to supplement his income. Now we may look at that and say, well, wow, that's an admirable thing to do. I told someone the other day that if, if somehow I came across a bunch of money, I'd tell the church, now don't tell the financial committee about this, but I'd tell the church, hey, you don't need to pay me anymore, I'm good. And I said to someone, what am I going to do after I retire? Retire. What am I going to do? I'm still going to be teaching the Bible. I'm still going to be serving in the church. I won't retire from this. So if I had the means to do it, if I could support my family from some other way, I would gladly do it. And, and so we say that's admirable. 
We'd respect somebody saying that, but it seems as if the Corinthians were not respecting and actually made them less respected. Something saying like this, well, if Paul and Barnabas were real and devoted apostles, then we'd, we'd support them. Now, I want to pause for just a moment to say something that probably some of you are wondering. That a pastor is standing in front of the church talking about how the church is supposed to pay him. Seems pretty self-serving. Just like I said last week, these passages are assigned a year in advance. We break up the book and into preachable passages. But even if we didn't do this, you can't avoid what it says in Scripture. There's no agenda here. In fact, in my time in ministry, I've been told that I'm guilty of avoiding talking about money just because it makes me feel kind of gross. I don't like talking about how people should spend their money or how people get, should give their money I don't want anyone to think that what I do, I do because of money. I don't. And the same goes for all the staff here at this church. Every pastor that I know and every person who is paid by a church for their work often gives above and beyond the call of duty. For most of us in ministry, we gave years and years and years before we even saw a dime from our ministry work. It's not about the money. So then the question, why talk about this? Well, first and foremost, the Bible talks about this. Like, I, there's no way to get around what God's saying in his word. I mean, it, it's very clear, and to avoid this would be sinful, would be ignoring part of God's word to us. And so that's not preaching the whole counsel of God's word. Even the stuff that makes us uncomfortable is still worthy to be read, studied, memorized. The words of Paul are inspired by God just as much as the words of Christ. Every single word is from God. Second, I want you to think about this practically. A pastor's job cannot be defined by how many hours he spends in an office. A pastor's job, uh, um, he must be able to adjust his schedule and be ready at a moment's notice to serve the people that he's called to shepherd. Talk to enough pastors and you'll find out that many pastors have had to cancel family vacations, had to come home early because of a death in the church. It's part of the job, the security that a, a church has with their pastors comes from the, the church being able to meet their needs financially. Quick story. When I knew that my time in youth ministry was coming to an end, I knew that because I was about the same age as the parents of the kids in my youth ministry, which meant that I wasn't cool anymore. And so as a 25, 26, 27-year-old guy, I was cool. But then when I started seeing parents that were even younger than me, it was like, yeah, my days are done. And so when I realized that, uh, after six years in full-time ministry, um, I started to, to examine, okay, what's next? And I believe that God called me to preach. I believe that God called me to shepherd. And so I started sending some resumes out. And I got just a few calls back. And, and one, we were in California. And so there was a church in California in a bigger city, or a big city, that called. And we did the interviews and went through the whole process. And every person who's been on the search committee can tell you how awful that is. And, and so we went through that whole process and, and, and took a few months. And they finally said, Ryan, you're the guy that we think we want. And I said, okay. And he said, okay, we're going to send you a, a PDF of the salary package. Okay, fair enough, right? They had already booked the flight. And so I get the email and I opened the email up and I, I had in my mind, I did research. I said, okay, not live extravagantly, but, but to live close enough to the church that we can actually be part of the community is really important. And I said, um, I don't want to 
be up every night and I don't want to be full-time at a church and then have to worry about going and getting a second job. I just did, I don't think that's fruitful for the church. So I had a few numbers in my head and so when I opened that email up, I saw about half of what I thought was a fair, not exorbitant, not even high, but just minimal, it was half of that. And so I remember um, calling up the, the head of the search committee and I said, hey, um, I just wanted to make sure that this is what you meant to write. I mean, I'm not insulting you, um, but I just wanted to make sure. And his response was this. He says, Ryan, we all make career decisions knowing what, what the salaries are. And I said, yeah, but what's half of that? And so we, we decided, you know what, hey, we'll work through this and, and, and we're still going to go visit. And so we visited and realized pretty quickly that it wasn't the right fit for us. There were a whole lot of other things, not financially, honestly, that wasn't even the biggest issue. Um, but the idea of what seemed to me as trying to lowball me. And then I started calling pastor friends of mine and I kept hearing stories, the same thing over, oh yeah, Man, they were giving me the lowest number they could possibly give. I can barely survive. And for this city in California, we would have had to move 30 miles away in a one, maybe a two-bedroom apartment in a really shady part of town. And I said, that's, that's, that's not what I want to do. I don't want to do that. I, I don't think that's right or fair. I wanted to live in the community that I served. I wanted to be close to the people so that we see each other in the grocery store, that I can meet with my neighbors. And so we trusted that God would provide but the church didn't seem to want to. Now hear, hear me on this. I am not at all talking about FBA. I'm not talking about FBA at all. This church has a long history of being very fair, over more than fair to their pastors. Please know that. That all of the staff, uh, money is just never talked about. We're, 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 we're taken care of by the church and we are so eternally grateful for that. One, it does a couple things. One, it keeps pastors here longer, just be honest. But the second one is, it's one less thing that pastors have to worry about. If we can take care of our families and support our families and, and, and be able to provide food, um, as one pastor said, and be able to go on a vacation once every 10 years, if we can do that, then, then that takes loads off of our shoulders so that we can pour into the needs that people in our church have. Just a side note here. Please do not think I'm talking about this church at all, by no means. So look at verses 7 through 14. Paul makes the case again that churches should take care of those who take care of them. Look at verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? No soldier pays his way to go fight in a war. No one would plant a vineyard and never touch the grapes. No one would take care of a flock and not drink any of the, the milk. All Paul is saying here is that everyone has a vocation, and to quote 1 Timothy 5, a laborer deserves his wages. So someone may hear this reasoning and say, well, yeah, but Paul's talking about secular things. Paul's talking about things outside of ministry. This is war and farming and, and taking care of animals. Ministry's different. Maybe you've heard this. I've heard people say pastors should not be paid at all, that they should just trust in God more, that God will provide. You go ahead and try that. Turn in your resignation and wait for God to provide food for you. I've heard this over and over, and Paul, in verse 8, then, appeals to the law. 
He, he, he says this. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.18, he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4. So Paul isn't just using secular practices. He's going back to the law and saying, this has been established since the beginning. And then he continues his case in verses 9 through 11. He says this, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And then in verse 12, Paul talks about how he has the rights and yet he chooses not to. Look at verse 12. If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. What Paul is saying here, it echoes chapter 8, that taking care of others is far more important in the congregation than exercising one's own individual rights. Paul has every right to tell the churches that they should pay him for his labor. He says, I'm working for you. I'm doing all of this for you. I'm serving you. I'm being shipwrecked for you, literally. I'm being imprisoned for you. I'm being abused for you. I'm preaching the gospel for you. I tear over scripture for you. I'm preaching the gospel for your sake and your benefit. He had every right to say that. But Paul did not want the church to view Paul and that relationship as a customer and a salesperson. Paul's not selling anything. The church is not his client. He was doing all that he could to get them to see and experience the gospel for themselves. Paul affirms his spiritual right to be cared for, but he also affirms his right not to use that right if it somehow hinders people hearing the gospel. What mattered most wasn't money, though Paul needed money to survive. Paul's main concern through this section of 1 Corinthians and really the whole book and all of his writings was the gospel. Faithfulness to the gospel. And then in verses 13 and 14, he adds yet another defensive ministers of the gospel being paid. He writes this. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Another argument from Scripture. He's going back to Numbers chapter 18, where a portion of the offerings were given to Aaron and his sons. Paul bases his argument on the pattern found in the Old Testament. Well, then you say, wait a minute, that's the Old Testament. We're, we're, we're not bound by the Old Testament law, but Paul doesn't just use the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 9, someone says this to Jesus. I will follow you wherever you go. And this is where Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Another person then says to Jesus that he wanted to follow him, but he says, let me go back and first bury my father, meaning let me go back and wait for my father to die so all my family can go away and then I'll follow you. And Jesus says, go let the dead go bury the dead. Then another person said that he only wanted to say goodbye to his friends and family. Well, certainly that would be okay, right? No. Jesus says, no one who puts his hand on the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Immediately after these strong words that Jesus said, he appoints 72 people, send them into every town to prepare places for Jesus' arrival. 
and he gives them a warning. He says, you are being uh, sent out into the midst of wolves. You are lambs in the midst of wolves. And then he says this, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, you will rest upon him. Your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. And you may be thinking in your head, well, hey, I know the timeline of the New Testament. I know that 1 Corinthians was probably written 20 or 30 years before Luke compiled his gospel account. So how did he know? How did Paul know? Well, First, a lot of these statements were passed around in the early church. Luke was a historian, so he was able to do interviews to people to compile his gospel. So these statements were, were, were quoted by many. But even more than that, again, it comes back to how we view the Bible. Is all of the Bible God's word? Well, then yes. Is the Bible fully inspired? Yes. So if that's God's word, then, then Paul is, is writing God's word as if God is speaking those audibly himself. Now you may be wondering this too. Especially if you're a new Christian or you've seen financial abuses in the church, that these passages make it ripe for unsavory characters to come into a church and take a bunch of money. We've seen it. And we know that churches are made up of mostly trusting people which is why we must be extra vigilant. A pastor could flaunt this passage as a way to say, see, if you gotta pay me, you owe me this. I'm preaching the gospel to you. How much is that worth to you? So you need to give some more. I could say this personally. I have no control over the finances. I know nothing about what anybody gives in this church. The only thing that I do financially is I work on the budget a little bit, but then that goes to the elders, and then that gets the approval, and then once they approve it, they send it to you for the approval. So honestly, you're the ultimate authority in this. That if, if I was out of control, you have the ability as a church to say, no, we're not doing that. And this doesn't mean, though, that the church distrusts the staff. What it means is that you know the pastors and staff of this church, and the elders as well, are sinful people who are prone to wander. We're prone to make bad decisions. We're prone to do things that we know are wrong. And the safeguard for this church is that there are multiple levels of financial protection so that that stuff doesn't happen. But, but we know that there have been abuses in churches. There are pastors who are getting rich off the backs of church members. We, we know that sin can creep in and take hold of the finances, choking the life out of a church. And we know that some have just given up on church altogether because all they see are the, the, the TV preachers peddling this prosperity nonsense where God just wants everyone to be rich and so they, they, they need another private jet that costs $20 million because that's what God wants for them. And so they see that. And then they see churches where the pastor is living exorbitantly. And so they give up. They've seen, they've witnessed abuse, and so they say, church is not for me. I'm not doing it. But you know what's interesting in this passage? The most interesting thing for me, as much as Paul talks about the reality of, of churches and ministries paying people who are preaching the gospel to them and how good that is, it's not the main point of what Paul's trying to get across. Just like chapter 8, Paul says, I'd rather set aside my entire salary as much as I may need it if that somehow hinders someone from coming to know Christ. This is my right, but I'll remove that right in order to help someone to come to know Christ. 
That's why I have a problem with financial abuse in the church. It takes something that is necessary, an income, and turns it into an idol. It goes from, I need a salary to survive so that I can serve with focus, to I need this to have a better life. It's twisting the gospel to make one's life here the focus. It's creating a kingdom here and now for oneself rather than focusing on the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel and the increase of that kingdom. In other words, it's an abandonment of the gospel. The gospel says that sin, our sin, has separated us from God. And that only a perfect substitute could, could stand in our place. Only a perfectly spotless substitute could stand in between us and the wrath of God. And that person is found in Jesus. Fully God, fully man. Fully man so that he could live a perfect life for us and fully God so that he could withstand the wrath of God and still survive. Jesus died on the cross for our sin. He paid the penalty we owed by taking that on himself and suffering and dying in our place. And because of this work of Christ and of his perfect life being given to us, we can have fellowship with God and the promise of eternal life with him. Listen, money and finances are not the promise that we seek. If your hope is in your bank account or your future or your finances, your hope is in the wrong thing. It's the promise that we're given in Christ. Our riches are not money. Our riches are not financial security. What makes us rich is what's found in Christ. This is what Paul focuses on. Yes, he understands that we need to eat. Yes, he understands that we need shelter. He understands this. He knows that we have needs that can only be met through some sort of income. But he also knows that an income is worth nothing if it hinders the work of the gospel. We have nothing. The millions that some preachers are proud of are worth nothing if the gospel that they preach is not the correct gospel. So a few main takeaways from this. First, Based on scripture, a church has the obligation to take care of those who take care of them. If, if a person makes it their vocation to be gospel-centered and workers in the church, and they do this and they're doing a good job and it's a full-time gig, then they deserve to, to be taken care of. How a church defines that, because truth is, is that a salary here in East Tennessee is not going to be good enough in Manhattan or Los Angeles or San Francisco. So that's up to every church to decide. But the definition would be, I think, found in scriptures. The idea there is that the church should take care of those who take care of the church. Second, a church and its pastors must work to ensure that nothing they do hinders the work of the gospel in their ministries. The gospel must always be our focus. The gospel not only brings us to a right relationship with God, it changes the way that we think. It causes us to be generous with what God has given to us. It brings us to a place where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, just simply makes sense. It's not a surprise. It's like, oh yeah, okay, that works. The gospel is what matters most so that the ones who are preaching the gospel ought to have their needs met by those who are being blessed by their work. And this is not my words. These are the words from Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is not self-serving. The truth is, is that whether it's a pastor an evangelist, or a missionary. The calling is not from the church. The calling is from God. 
The church is there to, in, through acts of obedience, to support those ministries so that more and more people hear the gospel and are transformed forever. And this is the work of ministry. Would you pray with me?